and welcome to the Low Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology in the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. So today we're talking about evidence and the types of evidence we use in archaeology. So we'll be talking about things that you've probably heard of before, like artifacts, but we'll also be introducing other things like provenience and ecofacts, features, assemblage, and different types of artifacts that you'll, or different types of evidence that you'll come across when you're reading archaeology and you need to know what they are. Um, and the first are uh, physical entities. These are actual things that we find usually in the ground uh, or underwater or usually buried. So uh, the first is an artifact. Artifact, everyone probably has heard of an artifact before. The technical definition is a portable object. It's a portable object used, modified, or made by people. I'm going to turn off the lights because it's a little bright. An artifact is a portable object made, used, and modified by people. Better. So, can anybody think of a modern example or a, an example of an artifact today? You've got a pen. Yes. Anyone else? Everyone always looks around the rooms and names things that they're looking at. Um, so, yeah, anything. Anything that is portable, I guess. Technically, a table, if it's not nailed down to the floor, you could move a table. So I guess it would be an artifact. Uh, it doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be something somebody has kept for a long time. It doesn't have to be anything other than something used, modified, or made by people. Um, sometimes people will say something like, oh, the... Uh, this gravesite is an artifact of this culture's veneration for the dead. Usually because artifact has a technical meaning in archaeology, we don't use that turn of phrase in archaeology, although sometimes you'll see that in uh, other disciplines where they're talking about artifact as kind of like a, a representation of or something like that. We, we don't really use it that way. Um, what about, so now kind of trick question, and I guess it's not really a trick question, but more of a challenge question. What about um, a rock that somebody picks up and ties around a uh, tent stay, you know, at a campsite? Does that rock then become an artifact? Thoughts? Think about the definition. Right, right, exactly. So even though it's just a natural feature of the landscape that's been used and it's a portable thing, technically speaking, it's an artifact. But unless you have evidence that it was used for, uh, for holding a tent down or whatever, you can't necessarily say that it is, right? Um, so although technically it is an artifact, we might not know it. And that's true a lot of times with natural things that occur in the landscape. And we'll talk a little bit more about ecofacts later on. Um, so in archaeology, the mm, stereotypical ones that we're going to be looking at are pottery, stone tools, and metal tools. The big two are ceramics or pottery, technically speaking, pottery usually, um, and, uh, and stone tools. Because one is stone, 
or lithic material, so it doesn't break down. It's been stone for thousands of years. Someone makes it into a stone uh, arrowhead, and it's still going to be you know, that really uh, robust material for thousands of years into the future. And pottery is kind of like human-made stone, right? We um, kind of speed up the process of lithification um, and make clay into something that's akin to stone that doesn't really break down other than you know, physically being broken. That's why we have so much pottery and so much stone tools. Um, things like metal. Here we have Utsi's ice axe or Utsi's uh, copper axe with a copper axe head. A lot of times those will oxidize and kind of uh, disintegrate in the environment. Same with a lot of other metal tools. Not to mention wood or leather. Uh, these things are almost never preserved, although they were probably even more common than the things that are preserved. Um, one big thing we really look into is trash. Like I said, it doesn't have to be a pretty or nice piece of thing. Of, of It doesn't have to be a nice item to be an artifact. Garbage is just as valid a class of uh, artifacts as you know, Ming vases. And actually, garbage is usually more useful for us. I don't want to say more useful for us. It is useful for us because people throw a lot more away, especially now we throw a lot more away. But when people throw away, They've made the decision, this is no longer important for me, so I'm going to get rid of it. And so we can kind of have some idea of how they value things. Um, and that can be important, say, if you're looking at a specific type of to stone tool near the source, the quarry where they get that stone tool, people are going to be throwing it out if they, you know, chip the, chip the blade edge of a stone tool. They'll, ah, we'll just throw it out and I'll make a brand new one. But when you get farther away and you have to carry those stones a long distance, people are going to curate them or they're going to keep them a lot longer and use every piece they can to be really economical with it. So by looking at you know when they choose to throw it away, it can tell us a lot about um, other things, not just the artifact. So an assemblage, which is the next uh, physical entity we're talking about, an assemblage is a grouping of artifacts. It's a grouping of artifacts. One artifacts, and then multiple artifacts come together to make an assemblage. And it's a grouping of artifacts which are thought to occur together in a socially meaningful way. Say that again, a grouping of artifacts which are thought to occur together in a socially meaningful way. So they occur together in a socially meaningful way. There's another way that we use it in archaeology. Um, it also means like the universe of artifacts at that site. So if I were to say the assemblage from this site, it means all the artifacts that are there. In statistics, you'd call that a universe or a population, I guess. So an assemblage is a grouping of artifacts which are thought to occur together in a socially meaningful way. For example, if we were just looking at this pot in this burial here, this pot or that pot or, you know, the skeleton or the other grave goods in here, okay, you can learn a little bit about this culture from that. But if we know that they come from this assemblage or this grouping of artifacts, we know that that's, that we, we know that that's going to give us a lot more information. Ah. Why do they have one type of vessel like this, one type of vessel like this, one like this, in this location, right? There's a lot more it can tell us by being together. It has more information than each artifact alone. This is one of the reasons that looting is so nasty. Uh, it takes away that information, the context. Here we have a Viking horde or a horde uh, protecting goodies from Vikings. Hard to tell. Um, this was so The meaning behind this is people were hiding and caching 
um, their valuables in the, in the ground in hopes that nobody would find them. And obviously something happened to them and they never came back. These are always found in like farmer's fields in England and things. Actually, would you mind grabbing that door, please? Thanks. Okay. We'll move on to features. So features are uh, non-portable evidence. They're non-portable evidence of human use, modification, or construction. Key here is non-portable. Non-portable evidence of human use, modification, or construction. Non-portable evidence of human use, modification, or construction. Now, today with modern large earth movers and things like that, there isn't much that we couldn't move, right? Um, during colonialism, they moved huge pieces of uh, stone from the Middle East to the British Museum. Uh, I believe there's a mu museum in Berlin that has deconstructed an entire like wood, or sorry, a stone gate from Babylon and moved it to. They deconstructed it stone by stone, brought it to Berlin and reconstructed it. Like so, technically speaking, it's portable. But what we really mean is something that wasn't meant to be moved. When the people were building the that uh, gate at Babylon, the Ishtar Gate, they weren't hoping that it would be moved, right? They didn't think of it as a portable thing. So it's a feature. Feature is non-portable. Usually we're thinking about things like buildings, um, things dug out of the ground, uh, hearths, right? Because you're not going to move a campfire, right? You make the campfire in place and it's there. Um, these are all features. Uh, so again, looking for modern examples from your own lives. What kind of features have you encountered today or whenever? Anybody? Yeah, building we're in right now. Perfect. Uh, road that I was on on my bike getting soaked coming in. Yeah. Um, so if we were to move, like, you know, technically I guess we could move these things by digging the earth out and moving it as a block, which is a viable excavation technique in emergencies um, or for very fine work in um, dangerous environments. They'll like cut out that whole block of soil and lift it and move it, but that's, that's stretching to say that it's portable, right? It's really not portable. This is a fire-cracked rock where um, people would use the heat from stones to cook meat in a pit, things like that. All right. In ecofacts, the final category of physical entities, ecofacts are naturally produced items used by humans. Naturally produced items used by humans. Naturally produced items used by humans. So this would bring us back to our rock that you that we used to tie down the tent, um, the tent rope, right? That was an ecofact technically. Um, a naturally produced item used by humans. So um, pe people use skeletons, people use bones for um, buttons or tools, uh, or in this case, this Inuit house uh, would have been a skin house, skin covered house that used whale bones uh, for the rafters because there, as you can see, there's no trees, so they had to use what was available for them. Um, even our own skeletons technically would be ecofacts because I'm using my skeleton, right? Um, and I modify my skeleton by what I do in my life. I break bones. Um, if you are a very muscular person, that will affect your bones. Um, the more you stress your bones, the thicker and stronger they become, unless you break them, of course. 
Um, and so like really muscular people, like uh, bodybuilders and people who have really um, physically taxing lives, their, their skeletons will be changed, um, osteoporosis, um, whole bunch of markers on your body that we'll talk about later when we get to physical anthropology that tell us about um, your life. And that, that's an eco-fact, technically speaking. And sometimes it is difficult um, to know if something's been used by humans. One kind of catch-all, and my, my red flag spidey sense always goes up when I hear this term, because you have to know really well. Uh, a manuport, M-A-N-U-P-O-R-T, a manuport. This means it was carried and set down in this area. Usually this is like unmodified rocks, and they'll find a rock that doesn't belong, geologically speaking, in this area, like... If we were up here in Madison and you were out in your backyard and you found a clump of obsidian, you could probably say this is a manuport because there's no reason for obsidian to be up here. Um, so manuport, you have to kind of know the underlying uh, geology of the area if you're saying a rock is a manuport or some other thing is a manuport. Otherwise, you could just be saying that because... It's easier than trying to figure out how it got there otherwise. So we also have some other um, archaeological constructs we use a lot uh, to demarcate um, physical space. So the largest of these is an area. The area is a very large geographical region. And an area usually encompasses, these are hierarchical, an area encompasses regions. Many regions make up one area. Uh, so, for example, here is a map of the Maya area. Right, the Maya area. It's all relative. If we're looking at the uh, North America as an area, then this might be knocked down to a region. Right. So it's all hierarchical, and it depends what your point of view is. But in this example, the area would be the Maya area. And then within that are regions. Regions is a uh, regions are a geographical area more strictly bound, more strictly bound by similarity of sites and cultures. It's a geographical area more strictly bound by similarity of sites and cultures. A geographical area more strictly bound by similarity of sites and cultures. Basically, what that's saying is the sites within a region should be more similar to one another than they are to the ones outside. So the sites within this region should be more similar to one. Um, and so does anyone see a problem with that potentially? You're thinking critically. Let's say I'm saying, hey, these sites are a region, and you were playing devil's advocate. What would be a way that you could potentially say, mm, I don't think so? Yeah, potentially, and also, how are you defining similarity? That's the big one, because you could do it by um, a specific pottery type, like, oh, all these sites have the same pottery type, but maybe that's for a different reason, uh, or not the primary one to link them together. Maybe that's just because they're centered around this town that made them, 
but there's really like a political border down the middle and it splits them apart in other meaningful ways, right? So regions are, and areas, all of these really, are defined by people and defined somewhat, I won't say arbitrarily, but based on what we, the investigator, thinks is the most salient features that separate these things apart. When in fact, to the people that lived there, perhaps they would have um, organized themselves or understood themselves to be in different regional configurations. So we just always have to keep that in mind. The, what the archaeologist says is a region is what he or she is using as a device to talk about that area rather than necessarily something set in stone unless they have literally something set in stone. Like uh, for the Maya area, we know like that one site was dominant over the sites around it because they'll have a text that says, you know, the holy lord of Copan um, was visited by his vassals from this town, that town, that town, that town, and that town, and they brought him tribute to show their allegiance to him. Okay, then we know that that's probably a region, right? A meaningful social unit for that culture, but we wouldn't necessarily know that otherwise. So, um, Another way that we can define regions is geographically. For example, uh, this is a terrible map. I don't know why I keep including it. So this is the uh, Pacific Ocean here on the left. And this squiggly line, this river, is the Viru River in South America. And down this valley are a whole bunch of sites. And you can see at the edge of the valleys in these uplands, there's not many sites. So these, we could call this a region. It's a valley, and all of the sites here probably were linked up by kinship and trade and things like that and they were interacting with one another. So this would be a good way that we could pretty cleanly say that this is a region. They're isolated geographically. Um, Egypt is an even better example because there's a very narrow strip on the other side of the Nile that can be um, irrigated and that was very different than the rest of the area. So there are a lot of geographical constraints we like to use because those are a lot cleaner than when we make up not makeup, that's the wrong word. When we choose one characteristic to make, make it a region. And a site is a place with identified human use. It's any place with identified human use. Any place with identified human use. So one could... A, a somewhat tricky question. I don't know if it's tricky. Let's say you are sailing through the ocean and you come upon an island with no people on it, but there's garbage washed up on shore. Would that be a site or would that be not a site? Washed up on shore. Why is that? Right. Yeah, I mean, you could make some long legalistic argument that by letting their trash go everywhere. They're using the whole, you know, but whatever. No, you're right. I agree. That would be my interpretation, although site has legal implications. Um, and, but in this case that I was making up, uh, yeah, likely those got there through happenstance. They weren't necessarily, it wasn't used by humans. It wasn't purposeful. Um, not that everything has to be purposeful, but that, that's a big, big part of it. Um, in the U.S., for example, a site in legal terminology is a recognized place where uh, humans have done something in the past. And it can be 
recognized on registries or it could be unregistered, but there are legal implications, so there are like minimum. Some states, you have to have three artifacts to be constituting a site. If it has two artifacts, it's not a site. Kind of, it's, it's arbitrary, but that's the legal standard in some states. What's important is that when a site is recognized in a state in the United States, um, there are protections that come with it. And if you are building infrastructure, say a pipeline, then you have to make sure that that site is not going to be, preferably not going to be disturbed by it. Or if it is going to be disturbed, is there a way in which we can, quote unquote, make the site redundant, which means excavate the whole thing up and record it and then destroy it. That's one possibility. Or reroute around it. Um, so, for example, uh, I do work on the side as a copy editor for a company that does a lot of reports on um, what is and isn't a site, uh, legally speaking, in the U.S. And we vet pro products or we vet construction projects very similar to, for example, the North Dakota Access Pipeline. Our company didn't do that, but I've read a lot of reports that are identical and the ways in which the law is able to uh, exert itself in those is, is really interesting. Um, and somewhat problematic um, because obviously talk about uh, DAPL for a second because it's a hot topic right now po politically um, and one of the things that they're using to stop it or had been using to stop it was the regulation of um, of sacred lands which is something that would come under the the same rules that sites are governed by uh, sites are governed by in the U.S. So basically, um, they should have gone out and done a survey and gotten uh, permission and a report produced that says that um, putting in this pipeline won't destroy any sacred sites. And so it would be interesting to go back. And I haven't seen any articles yet um, going back to look at those reports. They might not be available to the public yet. I'm surprised they haven't been leaked uh, because they're supposed to show. Uh, due diligence and go and talk to the different um, constituencies, usually tribes or other people, communities who are in the way of these things. And if they didn't do that, then um, they're in trouble or that they might have trouble coming forward with their project. Um, a lot of the things we report are for the um, uh, Army Corps of Engineers, which was the one that denied the, re denied the request or the permit for uh, DUAPL recently. And now it looks like that's in flux again, so here we go. Um, anyway, uh, so examples of sites from archaeology include uh, Tutankhamun's tomb, right? That's a really nice finite. It's got walls and borders. Uh, Machu Picchu is clearly a site, and that also has very nice defined boundaries. It drops off a cliff. Um, Angkor Wat. There are other sites. It's a little more difficult to say where the edge of the site is, so a lot of times archaeologists will come up with uh, an arbitrary threshold. For example, for me, when I was uh, mapping a site for my dissertation, I said wherever there is no site for an additional 100 meters in any direction, that's the edge. So if there was a gap of 100 meters, and I mapped this whole site until I had a 100 meter buffer around it with no, no more structures, and that was the border of the site. That's one way to do it. There's really any way to do it as long as you're consistent. Okay. Or, like I said, three artifacts makes a site. All right. One of the most important things that we deal with in archaeology is context. Context 
is a find's place in its surrounding. So you could say an artifact's place in its surrounding, or a feature's place in its surrounding. Uh, so a context is a find's place in its surrounding. And this is not only its physical location, while that is important, it's also how is it associated, we'll talk about that in a little bit, associated with its surrounding artifacts, right? So if we go back, apologies if you have epilepsy, slip back here. Like I said, the context of this pot is helped because it's in a grave. If we just found this pot, it wouldn't be nearly as instructive as knowing that this pot is part of this entire grave. So context is very important. And this is a technical meaning of context, right, rather than uh, the general one we use it every day. Um, context is destroyed by looting. When you take a pot out of that place, we lose half or more, I don't know how you'd quantify it, but a significant amount of the information. Um, there are different types of context. The first is primary context. Primary context is where people meant to put it. Primary context is an artifact's original context after use or modification. That's the technical, say that again just if you want the really technical version. An artifact's original context after use or modification. But the simple way to say it is, primary context is where somebody purposefully left a artifact or an ecofact or a feature. It's the primary, where it's supposed to be in the minds of the user. Um, so trash pits, even though people are discarding things, they mean to throw it in the garbage, right? Uh, burials, butchery sites, this is where uh, mobile hunter-gatherers would have killed an animal and they dismembered it and then they would discard different bones and parts of the animal. That would be a primary context. Um, things like quarries. Uh, artifacts that are found in quarries were usually primary context, right? All right, and then we've got things like, um, and what we're looking at here are King Tut's tomb, right after they came into it. It had been so well sealed that uh, the microbes hadn't been able to break down the wood, and they, when they unsealed it, they could hear the wood like, cracking and creaking as the humidity rose and things started to break down. Um, this is an offering here in the bottom corner of the slide of, we don't quite know what, but it's really neat. It's jade and other um, greenish stones carved to look like humans um, with these, what are called celts, uprights. And then there's, they're all looking at, I think it's this guy who's made out of like basalt or a completely different stone. And so we think it commemorates some sort of event where um, perhaps somebody from outside came in and these are all the you know, major leaders from there. We don't know exactly what's going on, but it was deposited in this like diorama scene. And boy, I would love to have been the person who excavated that because that would have been quite the, quite the day. Um, secondary context, on the other hand, is an artifact's context if it's changed from its primary context if it's changed from its primary context. So if it's moved away from the primary context, it's in a secondary context, kind of logical. Um, and this can be human, and it can be, or it could be natural means. So um, some ways that humans do it are like looting or bulldozing or any kind of human means. Uh, natural means usually are things like erosion um, or landslides or burial, things like that. Those are all types of secondary context when things get moved around 
by humans or natural means. So, um, for example, um, this is a kind of like a made-up chain of events, but 7,500 years ago we have um, somebody making chipstone tools outside of a building, and then a year later they either sweep the debris into a midden, and then, um, or they're or they abandon it, whatever. Um, so it's still all primary context because the people are meaning to do that. Then, say, a thousand, uh, 1,500 years later, somebody digs up that hillside where the old um, primary context uh, stone tool flakes are buried, and they use it to fill this platform. Well, kind of gets a little complicated because if you're talking about the stone tools, they're moved to a secondary context. However, this whole thing when you're talking about the fill is primary context because that's where humans meant to put it. So if you're asked, it's relative. Um, so if you're talking about primary um, for the stone tools, that's lost when they dig up the, the hill for, the, um, for filling up this platform. But then the platform itself, when you're asking about its primary context and the fill's primary context, this would be it. And later on, when it gets destroyed, then it's in its secondary context. Is that clear it's specific to that item or feature okay. here's an example of here's an example of what rarely ever happens although you see it in the archaeological literature this would be a um, redeposited midden so up here people were throwing away different types of garbage and the lowest is the oldest and then the middle and then the newest garbage and it's on a slope so when water runs down and washes the top layer off and then the middle layer off, and then the bottom layer off, it redeposits it in upside down order. And people say this happens in their reports when they find things that don't fit with the way they want it to be. And so every time someone says a reversed stratigraphy, which we'll talk about soon, stratigraphy, um, but this reversed layering, uh, it's a red flag to me because sometimes what's actually happening is they're reading the stratigraphy correctly and it's their model or their chronology that's actually wrong. So um, this happens, but rarely. So we'll come back to that when we get to stratigraphy. All right, so pop quiz, not really. Uh, is litter left after a picnic an example of primary or secondary context? Primary or secondary? Who says primary? Hands? Couple hands? Who says secondary? Couple hands. Who doesn't know or care? Okay. Um, so I would call that primary because it's left there by humans. Um, so it's humans' use. It's they're choosing to leave it, leave it there because it's litter. Um, human use. It represents you know very closely where it was left after being used. Things like that. So I would say primary. However. If uh, there was a rainstorm and all that picnic litter was washed into the gutter, then we say secondary. Okay. Landfill primary or secondary? You could make an argument for either, but probably primary. Uh, it's primary in the fact that people mean to put their garbage there, but it's secondary in the fact that my personal garbage, I didn't put it there. I put my garbage in the trash can. So that's, for me, that would be primary context. And once it gets moved, then it's in its secondary. So it depends what scale or what uh, 
what focus you're using. If you're using the small scale individual focus, it would be secondary. But if you're looking at the society as a whole, you could consider a land, a land uh, fill a primary context. So. so it's not always clear. It depends what you're looking at. Provenience is just a fancy word for location. That's the technical definition. No, not really. Uh, the technical definition is an artifact's physical location. Artifact's physical location or eco fact or whatever. Defines physical location. Um, and usually we use XYZ coordinates. Uh, most sites will have a grid with an arbitrary origin of 1,000 east, 1,000 north, and then, you know, you go up however many meters and over how many, many meters, then you have a new coordinate for that, and then Z, of course, is your elevation, or whatever your elevation is, right? above sea level usually. So provenience might be like that. It might give you a three-dimensional coordinate where this was found. But in most cases where you are going to see the word provenience is in... Um, is in a museum. And by there, you might just say, oh, this was found at this site, or it comes from this culture. So provenience doesn't have to be exact to the meter or centimeter of where it's found. It could be more general. And if you want to seem smart, and, or I don't know, know it all in front of your friends or whatever, and you're at a museum, and you see something that says provenience unknown, that's the really polite way to say that it's probably stolen. <laughs> so uh, when you go to museums and you see something that says provenience unknown, it's probably looted and then bought by the um, museum or bought by an art collector before there were robust laws in place. And then the museum got it in a will or maybe they bought it way long ago. Um, now there's more rules against doing this, but it still happens. So here we have somebody at the Ozette site in Washington State, um, and they're measuring the three-dimensional location of what I can't, I, I can't see what that is, but it's an artifact or something. The Matrix is uh, not only a series of movies, but is in archaeological context is, a, is the soil or whatever sediment is surrounding an artifact, the material surrounding an artifact. So usually soil, sometimes water, sometimes honey. Uh, yeah, so early in the 1900s, this is maybe an apocryphal story, I don't know if it's true, uh, but supposedly um, they opened a jar in ancient, uh, from an ancient Egyptian tomb and there was honey in it and the honey was still honey. Like they could eat it and they were like eating it, uh, you know, like trying it and then they found when they got a little deeper in there that it was a preserved um, young, very young child preserved in the jar of honey that they had been trying. So it may be apocryphal, maybe a just so archaeology story, but in that case, honey would have been the matrix of that burial. So, but most of the time we're talking about dirt and the dirt can tell us a lot. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about soil science later on and what it can tell us, for example, the size, shape, and diversity of the settlement, uh, the sediments that are surrounding an artifact might tell us if it's a primary or a secondary context. So these things are very important. Matrix is very important. Okay. So here again, um, it's from this matrix, the soil that's surrounding this 
conference or whatever we're looking at in this uh, Olmec site, uh, we can actually tell that they re-exhumed -ex it in the past, looked at it, and then recovered it from the soil, from the matrix around it. There's cuts or um, there's a line where they can see where they dug back down and looked at it. So um, the matrix can be really important information. Association. Association is just an artifact's close contextual relationship with specific uh, artifacts or types of artifacts. So it's a an artifact's close contextual relationship with specific types, uh, you know, with specific types of artifacts, uh, or with specific artifacts. Close contextual relationship with specific artifacts or types. Um, so when I say this was found in association with. That means it was in the same tomb. It was in connection with something else. For example, this is a Clovis point. Last time I talked about Clovis point um, in the 1940s, when we were talking about the history of archaeology, when this point here on the slide was found in association with the extinct bison uh, bones, it changed the uh, chronology of Native Americans and their... Um, existence in North America. Um, Utsi the, has anyone heard of Utsi the Iceman? Or Utsi the Iceman? People say it different ways. Um, so there was an arrowhead found in association with his body. So they're talking about like the world's oldest murder case. Nah. Uh, but other things were found in association with him. Uh, his, his knife and his axe. And so we can kind of reconstruct his whole, um, his whole outfit here. And finally, stratigraphy. Stratigraphy is, we'll, we'll talk a lot more about this, but it's stratigraphy are layers, the study of layers, usually layers of soil. In, in archaeology, we're almost always talking about layers of soil, although it doesn't have to be soil. It could be a, a floor, a concrete floor. When you put down a concrete floor, that constitutes a layer, and that can help us um, deduce chronology and other things. We're going to talk a lot more about chronology, uh, excuse me, uh, stratigraphy, so I'm not going to get into it much today. Um, okay, I'm going to stop there uh, with lecturing. Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Sharealike License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.